You may be seated. Hallelujah. You glad to be in church? Isn't it fun to be in the house? Yeah? Look around at all of you amazing people. I, I want to uh, affirm you, uh, give you a little bit of a shout out uh, in terms of, you know, we're often thinking about outreach and, uh, you know, all of the ministries that we're endeavoring to do in the Lord and, and uh, seeing Him work through us. Uh, but, you know, Joel and I were just rejoicing over this weekend uh, in that, you know, we had like 50 people here for Raising Great Kids and something like 41 were from the community. So uh, I, want us, I want us just, uh, yeah, go ahead and pat somebody on the back, pat yourself on the back, uh, give the Lord a shout out. So, uh, and some of this has come through your own creativity with us. When we have a thousand people on the property for a candy hunt, and every one of those people get, get a little swag bag. Remember the swag bags we were giving out? And then there's an invitation to Raising Great Kids, and then they're, they're coming on the website, and they're reading about it. They're registering. They're coming. So I want us to be thinking, though, it's not just the motels. It's not just the Oxford homes. It's not just the recovery centers. It's not just... Uh, uh, Recover life and restored life and all those things, but it's also you know uh, the top in the top three felt needs of culture society is how do I raise my kids? And uh, Joel and I were talking about it yesterday. Every church in the country's got celebrate recovery, right? We've all got Celebrate Recovery going on. Our little version is restored life or recover life, right? So every church has got something like that going on. How many churches have how to raise your children? This is in the top three felt needs in all of culture. And I'm telling you, this weekend was such a powerful blessing. Uh, and uh, so we're just we're kind of blowing up with uh, happiness uh, that, that you're partnering with us over these things. And, um, and I think we lost a little bit of money over it. You know what that means? That means you invested in 41 families And I'm telling, I'm telling Joel, these are the leader losses that we should be involved in, right? Ministry can cost us a little bit of money because this is the kind of thing we want to sow into. We, we were sowing into these families, principles from the Word and principles of, uh, 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 you know, that, that they're not, the millennials of today are not getting this stuff. That they're, they're, you know, who's serving them godly wisdom, right? So, Lord, we just thank you and we just, we just receive the enablement today. We just say yes to grace to invest in society, culture, families, community. We just thank you that it's increasing through us. And even as our sowing made this possible, we just receive increase from you for more and more of this kind of ministry. And everybody said, amen. So exciting. Well, today we're talking about uh, Raised to Life. We, we kind of, you know, prayed about this. We postured our hearts and ourselves as a staff uh, to, to approach Easter uh, out of Raised to Life and then to approach the next few weeks out of this sermon theme of being raised to life. And, of course, we want you focused on being raised to life. And uh, Zach did a great job last week, uh, Sunday morning on Easter morning. I just felt like the Holy Spirit was ministering to us about identity and finding our identity in the Lord, and, and that was amplified a little bit more through Zach last week. And so, but today I want to talk about a, 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 a major portion of being raised to life, and um, 
It's some of the principles that are just like have been galvanized in my own heart. We've got the the beautiful casket here for our uh, stage prop. Can you see it over there? Through the uh, the podium, we've got this beautiful casket. Uh, last week, we had Zach jump out of the casket. Um, and actually, what he was saying when he came out of the casket, and he said, that was not my idea. Actually, what he was saying is, that was such a good idea. I want to give Pastor credit for that. That's really what he was saying. But I know that didn't come across, you know, quite, quite like it should have, but I, that's what he was really saying. But, but I want to talk about a major, a major key, a critical key to being raised to life, and that is being fully dead. And that's why I wanted the casket up here today, and I wanted it to be a, a reminder that we are fully dead. And I wanted us to meditate on being fully dead and just kind of look through what it is to be fully dead, because if we're not fully dead, we can't be fully raised to life. And actually, to the degree that we're fully dead, it's to that degree that we're actually resurrected with him. And actually, death and resurrection are constantly taking place momentarily in your your life as you're making those fully dead choices. So actually the partnership with him in resurrection, it might happen actually several times today as you're faced with faith choices, as you're faced with following him choices, resurrection will happen simultaneously as you embrace a death to certain things. And so today I want to talk about what that death looks like and what those certain things are, what it is that we are putting death to. Matthew 10, 38, and I want to just introduce some of this with a scripture from Jesus. To be raised to life is to be fully dead. If we're fully dead, we will fully live. Do you believe that, by the way? I hope that you believe that if you're fully dead, you will fully live. If you hold back, if you refuse to die, if you resist death in certain areas of your life, in those areas you will die. By the way, it's actually possible for you to experience partial death. Because we really don't live like one big blob of life. We actually live in segments. So the sexual segment of our life could be dead if we are choosing to embrace the principles of the Adamic nature of that old life, then we actually could be losing life. Our monetary or our financial segment of life could be experiencing death because we refuse to let it die. We refuse to put it in the casket. We refuse to, we're resisting, we're holding back. Wherever there's a holdout in the segments of our life, wherever there's a hold back, there will be a failure to enter into resurrection. The Bible says he who holds on to his life will actually lose it. Matthew 10, 38, let's read it together up on the screens. And to anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The cross is an implement of death, and we're going to define as we talk today what's being put to death in the cross. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wow. Whoever loses his life. So there's a death that is actually we, a, a death we want to embrace. There's a dying that we want to embrace. 
And if we lose our life, if we put certain elements, aspects, perspectives of life to death effectively in the cross, in the grave, in the waters of baptism, Colossians 2, Romans 6, we are buried together with him. We'll read that in a moment. If we do that effectively in these segments of life, then we will experience resurrection like we've never experienced this. And that could be part of all of our troubles from time to time. Why we're only experiencing partial resurrection because we're only embracing a partial death. So what is the death we die in Jesus? Number one, the death we die in Jesus is a death to following sin's desires. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? It's counting ourselves dead to sin. It's cooperating no longer with sin. Anybody ever have sin trying to get you to cooperate with it? Come on, casting. Uh, 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 there's, a, there's, a nice, uh, there's a nice chunk of bait set on the hook, and it's, and it's <coughs> cast over your direction, and, and, and you can kind of feel the pull of, of something pulling you in. It is sin that we count as dead in the cross and in water baptism. And Paul and Jesus both call this taking up our cross. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life or in a raised up life, in a resurrected life. You can walk in a resurrected life. How many of you have already tasted of that several times? Most of the time, much of the time, you're tasting of resurrection. You know what I'm talking about. Verse 5, For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, Now, I want you to see, this is real important as we talk about some of this stuff. He's not talking about in heaven. He's not talking about at the end of your life. He's not talking about in the sweet by and by. He's talking about right now, right now. Right now, you're united with Jesus in his death. Right now, you are participating in resurrection. Certainly, we shall be also participants united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, the sinful self, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, that's interesting, the guy, the gal that is buried in that is actually an embodiment of sin. There's something about your nature that embodies sin, and that being, that person, that, that identity within you can be put into that box and doesn't have to be let back out. That's powerful. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. 
We would no longer pay attention. We would no longer follow. We would no longer yield. We would no longer be controlled by. We would no longer participate in. We would no longer, for he who has died is free from sin. I love that. Dead people don't sin. Dead people don't sin. So you count the body of sin as dead, and as you do that, no matter what, no matter what the bait is on that hook that is cast over in your direction, as you count yourself dead and that body of sin, that that identity, that entity of sin that was interrelated to that old nature that you inherited through Adam, as you count that part of you in that box, buried with Jesus, put to death, then you'll be experiencing a raised-to-life essence, a raised-to-life power, a raised-to-life freedom, a raised-to-life joy and peace. You know, Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says that if if our mind, if our mind, our soul, mind, will, emotions, imagination, reasoning, if it is set on the things of the Spirit, then we begin to experience life and peace. Romans 8, 6. We will experience life and peace, but if our mind is set on the carnal nature, if it's set on that realm of sin, then we will experience death. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's not a death that is like you're dead. It's like you're walking dead. Because you feel like Winnie's poo. You feel cruddy. You feel lousy. You feel you can feel it on the inside. You feel dirty. You feel separated from God. You feel slimy. You feel... This is why we can't practice sin. John says that the believer cannot practice sin. Why? Because it's miserable to practice sin. But the Holy Spirit is calling us to be so... So cautious that we're looking over the areas, the segments of our life, and we are putting to death sin as it might allure us out of those areas of our life so that in no area is sin flourishing. Your sin, by the way, you you might not know this, I'll just announce it. Your sin longs, your flesh, your flesh longs to sin. The guy that's in that box longs to sin. Your flesh enjoys sin. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Your flesh enjoys sin. The Bible says, the Bible said that, says that actually sin provides pleasure for a short season. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, come on. Three of us put up our hands right there. Listen, the patriarchs, the patriarchs cherished the riches of knowing Christ, the riches of being aligned with God, the riches of saying no to sin, higher than the short pleasure of sin. And this is what God's calling us to do. Even consciously, with our heart, with our mind, with our emotions, our reasoning, that we would cherish the riches of Christ. We would cherish His friendship, His downloads, His nearness, His intimacy, that we would cherish a nearness with Him more than we enjoy or cherish the pleasure of sin. 
Because sin can be extremely pleasurable. Hebrews eleven twenty four. by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting or the passing or the short pleasure of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for his reward. What are you looking at? When sin comes alluring, when the hook is garnished with something that's really, really tasty, are you going to look beyond that for your reward? Are you going to look beyond that in this pleasurable relationship that you have with Jesus that is much greater than this fleeting, momentary experience? Come on, come on, come on. And it comes in different sizes and shapes, doesn't it? For some of us, it's overeating. For some of us, it's fear. For some of us, it's those thoughts of rejection and self-pity. For some of us, it's exaggeration. For some of us, it's unforgiveness and, and bitterness, yes? Come on. For some of us, it's, it's holding a grudge. It feels real pleasurable to be mad because... I've got, I've got every right to be angry. Comes in, it comes in different, but, but this, this is what God's, God's calling us to. And, and he's saying that the short pleasure of sin is not worth it because it ends in death. It's a different kind of death. It's kind of like the death that, that Satan, Lucifer, addressed when he addressed the issue of following God in Genesis. You shall not surely die. See, it's not a physical death, but it's a death in our soul. It's a death of intimacy. It's a death of connection. It's a, it's a death that until we repent of that and get it back out of the way, that we feel this little separation with our Father. It's a death to that intimate relationship wherein revelation flows and the goodness of God is accessible easily to our heart. That's why we want to forsake sin and keep that body of sin in that box. James 1.14, we doing okay? But to each person they're tempted when they're allured and enticed by their own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Number two, what are we putting in that box? What, it is, to, what, it is, what is it to be fully dead? What is it to be fully dead? The second thing I think we put in that box, the second thing that being fully dead is, so that we get experience a resurrected life, is submitting our will to the leading of the Lord. It's just not putting the body of sin in that box, but it's submitting our will to the leading of the Lord. fact is, I think this is what really was transpiring in Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3. The sin was not the tree. The sin was not all about the tree. The sin, the sin was rebellion of the heart. That was the sin. 
Because Father said, you can eat of all these trees. You can enjoy all these trees. But of this tree, don't touch. Of this tree, leave it here. It wasn't because the tree was some kind of an oddball tree. It's because Father said. See, when instruction comes from authority, then our heart needs to yield to that instruction. And Father is still looking today that we would have put in this box stubbornness and rebellion and self-will and distrust and whatever keeps us from yielding to His will. And this is why when the first Adam failed, then the second Adam had to repeat the same occurrence in a garden. The second Adam came into a garden. He finishes the Last Supper. He finishes the Last Supper with his disciples. And and he is explaining to them, I won't even partake of this cup again until I come into my kingdom. And he says, now let's make our way. And they make their way to the Mount of Olives. And he goes into this garden where he prays. This garden is symbolic of Eden. It's symbolic of a previous garden. It's symbolic of him communicating with his father. And it's in that garden that father is asking him, will you take this cup and will you drink it? This was the night of betrayal, and he was going to be betrayed in a garden that mirrored another garden. Another garden where the first Adam said, not your will, but mine. Not your will, but mine. But this Adam, the last Adam said, not my will, but yours. Do you see the difference? God is asking that we would put stubbornness and rebellion and fear and disbelief and distrust in that box so that we would experience a raised to life life. We cannot experience a resurrected life. You see, Philippians 2 says, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason that he stooped and said, for this reason that he bowed his heart, for this reason that he said, not my will, but thine be done. He even prayed. Have you ever prayed this? He even prayed. Father, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Let's talk about this. I I don't don't want to do this. (laughs) I really don't want to drink this cup. Have you had that conversation with Father? I I really don't want to drink this cup. Can we talk about this cup? Okay. Could be that the cup is hard, or it could be the cup is so good. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he finishes that prayer. He finishes that prayer. And I want to look at some of these verses quick, preaching the sermon before the sermon. He finishes that prayer by saying, nevertheless. Mark 14, let's go there. They came to a place named Gethsemane. This is, this, is, this is the garden there at Mount Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground, began to pray that if it were possible, that the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Haven't you prayed that prayer? All things, all things are possible for you. You can do this without me, Father. All things are possible with you. 
Father, you're, you're amazing. You're miraculous. You're wonderful. You can, do this without, you can do this without me doing this. You really, can't you do this? All things are possible with you, Father. Come on, let's talk about this. All things are, I'm a man of faith. Father, all things are possible for you. Okay, you're not changing your mind. All right. Okay, Father. All right. Okay. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the test. It's the test of obedience, doing the will of Father, submitting to Him completely. The new life that we have, this new creation life, it's a life raised up that's submitted to Jesus, our lover, our husband, our friend, our coach. It's trusting him. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father, now we submit to Jesus. It's trusting him. It's not trusting in a set of rules, but trusting the voice and the inner witness of your Lord, your lover, your coach. You have given up leading yourself. You have put leading yourself in that box right there. This is why we call him Lord. He has permission to lead you. Real quiet in here. Not because he's bossy, not because he wants to be bossy, but because you were meant to be divinely connected to the wisdom of your Father from the beginning. This is the way it was from the beginning. That the Spirit of the Almighty, that the divine wisdom from above would be alive within you, leading, coaching, inspiring, governing your life. And now that you've been reunited to him, don't think it that he wants to be bossy. Realize this is the normal life that he chose for Adam in the beginning, and he chose for the second Adam, and he chooses it for you, that you would be divinely connected to wisdom, thus free from self-sabotage. Oh, he's trying to save you from yourself. You need him, big boy. You need him, wise girl. You need him more than you realize you need him. And your stubbornness will keep you from the wisdom from above that you desperately need. If we won't yield, if we won't seek him, if we won't listen, then we will die. If we hang on to our lives, we will lose it. Obedience requires trust. Trust in Father no matter how good something looks, and I want to take you to something out of Genesis because this is so important. It's trusting Father no matter how good things look or no matter how bad things look. For Him to redeem us in that parallel, metaphoric Eden garden, for Him to redeem us, He had to go through something bad. But what pulled the first Adam away from the voice of God, from obedience, from trust, and from a yielded heart was something that looked really good. And this is how Satan wants to pull you away, is with something that looks really good. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate. Church, your greatest test, your greatest test in following the obedience, the voice, the leading of your Lord, the greatest tests will not be the hardest things. They'll be the things that look good to the eye. The things that look good to the eye. Will you choose the good over the best? On the other side of this good is the best. What will you choose? See, the leading of the Lord is there for you, but then the enemy comes with some good allurement, something that looks pleasing to the eye. I've got money in my pocket, and it looks really good to my eye, doesn't it? That money in my pocket, but the Lord says, bring 10% to the house. Well, this looks really good to my eye. The Lord said, just set one day aside and glorify me in that day and rest in that day. And he's trying to bless you. He's trying to give you a day off. But you're like, oh, this, is a, this looks really good. The profits I could make on this day, or it looks really good to my eye. The labor I could do on this day, it looks really good to my eye. Is it the, what I could get done in this day, it looks really good to my eye. See, it's the things that appear to be good that can become a great test of your obedience to follow the Holy Spirit. And what God is asking, the raised to life, life that He's asking you to live involves you putting to death your genius wisdom. I, he knows you're omniscient. He knows that you, I mean, you, when you look up wisdom in the dictionary, there's your name and your picture. He knows that. But, we, but, but he's just asking that you would just, for a, a short time, if you would just put that in this box and trust him, trust him that when he says, set this aside or follow me here or do this or this is my wisdom, or this is my counsel, that you would trust him, that you would say, yes, yes, yes. Even if you're giving up a good thing, that you would choose to believe his thing is better than the good thing you're giving up. Number three, the third thing he wants you to put in this box, the third thing he wants you to put in this box is a death to the curse a death to the cursed life of Adam. See, when you've been set free in Jesus, when you've been set free in the Lord, you've been set free actually into the very essence of who He is. Your identity is wrapped up in the divine one. Your identity is wrapped up in the risen one. Your whole being is wrapped up. And so part of what we have to put to death is our familiarity with all that is common and all that was common before we came to know him. So much so, you even have to forget about who you were. You have to forget about who you were. You have to forget about 
your limitations. You are now a partner with the unlimited one. Part of what has to go in this box is you yielding to the curse and yielding to sickness and yielding to fear and yielding to disease and discouragement and yielding to negativity, yielding to bitterness, yielding to everything that is common to Adam. You are no longer a partner or identified with the Adamic race, the Adamic nature. You are a brand new creation risen up with Jesus Christ already seated at the right hand of the Father and He's already bestowed on you, everything that he bestowed on Jesus, you're a co-heir with him. He can't tell the difference between you and Jesus if you are hidden in him. So here, here's how it works. The only way that the spirit realm, that any realm, that the God realm can even tell there's a difference between you and Jesus is if you step out of him you're hidden in and let them know that you're not all that in a bag of chips. Because in Jesus, you're not only all that in a bag of chips, you are actually, you're a happy meal with, with all the fries. I mean, you are, I mean, you're everything. Second Corinthians 5.16. Now, we know Second Corinthians 5.17, and we quote it in our circles often. For if any man is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. If any man is in Christ... And this word Christ, he uses the word Christ on purpose because Christ is not his last name. It is the anointed one. It is the Messiah. It is, it is used, juxtaposed to Adam. If you're out of Adam and you're into Christ, the last Adam, the redemptive representative of a brand new race of people, if you're in Christ, hidden in him, woven, wrapped up, tied up, bound up in Christ, then you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, we know that verse really well, but I love verse 16, of which we don't normally focus on. Verse 16. Here's Paul talking to the Corinthians, and here's Paul setting the strategy, setting the game, and setting things down for the way the Corinthian church should operate. Because we know in the Corinthian church, there came in drunkards, and there came in homosexuals, and there came in adulterers, and there came in all sorts of... And he says at one point, of such... All of us were. Yes? So then he says this, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we don't even regard him that way any longer. What's he saying? You know, we, we, we thought Christ was just Mary and Joseph's son. We I mean, we just, we didn't have a clue. We thought he was going to be the, the literal physical ruler of Israel. We didn't, we didn't know that he, I mean, we just, it hadn't dawned on us that he was the supreme ruler of the universe, that he was the living son of God, that he, that he was divine and not just human. We, it, it just, we, we, we knew him as, as, as a man, but, but now he's the resurrected one. He's supreme. We don't know him after the manner of his nature anymore. We don't know him after the manner of mom and dad anymore. We know him as one who is divine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, He who had the image of the heavenly. In fact, is in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, that we also bear that same image, right? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, he says that if we behold him as in a mirror, we will be transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory. Anybody's life getting more glorious? Four of you. Really? Is that it? Are you serious? Am I in the right place? I didn't know I was at the VFW hall this morning. Has anybody's life gotten a little bit more glorious? Thank you for that affirmation. So I want you to see this, though. See, we keep seeing ourselves as Bob and Betty's son. Bob and Betty from the Dallas, Oregon. Bob and Betty. We keep seeing ourselves fashioned after the limitation of our... That's mom and dad, all right. Bob and Betty. Bob and Betty. Then I've got a big brother. His name is Bob, too. That's little Bob Jr. Bob, Bob Jr. You ought to see him float on water. Little Bob can bob on. All right, so. And then Bob Jr. is married to Peg, Peggy. Peggy, Peggy. So we just shortened it up, Bob and Peg, Bob and Peg. So we got Bob and Betty and Bob and Peg. We got a lot of fun at the Wolf House, I'm telling you. We got some fun going on. All right, stay with me. Stop that. I want you to go, go back to this verse. I want you to see this verse. I want you to see what God's up to. So you keep seeing yourself potentially limited by the natural historical realm, by your lineage and your family, by what's transpired in your history. The Holy Spirit wants to transform you from glory to glory. Keep gazing at Him because He is your true identity. Keep gazing at him because he is, he is who you now are. We heard that verse last week. Zach quoted that verse, 1 John four seventeen. As he is, so also are we in this world. As he is, as he is. There's so many verses that talk about this. We've got to capture this and put something to death. We've got to make sure that doubt and limitation and poverty and fear and sickness and negativity is put in that box and we don't let it out. And every time it tries to get out, we give it a good... We give it a good stomp and we get it back down there and we put some more nails in that coffin. We make sure that we are not that negative person. We are not yielding to that unbelieving failure to take a risk person. We are not. Breakthrough is common for us. Miracles are normal for us. Prophetic insight is, is, it's literally, I mean, it's, it's more common than cheese on your burger. Why? Because you're connected to the divine one. Second Peter, we talk about it all the time here. Second Peter, one, one, two, and three. Through the promises of God, we become partakers of the divine nature. You who are believers are partakers of the divine nature. You are not who you were. You are not who you were. Divinity is flowing through you. That's not new age, by the way. That's new creation. That's new creation. Why? Because the divine one has energized your spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that. First John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has shown us that we should be called the children of God. That's what we are. For this reason, the world does not even know us. 
But beloved, we are now the children of God. And what we will be has not even been yet revealed, but we know that when the Lord appears, we will be like Him, and we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Wow, this is the raised up life. This is the raised up life. Man, I just keep, I just keep focusing, focusing. That, that He is my identity, not that, not that unbelieving, that doubtful, that limited person. I'm believing to walk on water before I die. Come on, there's a generation that's going to walk on water. I want to be in that generation. Read Ephesians 4:11. The increase of faith will continue until we have the full stature of Jesus dwelling within us. Close with these thoughts, and then we'll. This is my first closing. If the band would come. What death is not. Let's just talk about what death is not, just for a moment. Death is not killing the real you. That's not what we're talking about. This death is not killing your personality, by the way. It's not killing your talents or your gifting or your ambition. No, these things are the real you. These are the things that are hidden under the veil of sin and fear. Under the code of sin. It's interesting We take off the coat of sin, which is a filthy garment, the Bible says, and we put on a robe of righteousness. Righteousness causes all of those gifts within you to flourish and to spring into fruitfulness. But that filthy coat of unrighteousness sabotages your giftings, perverts your giftings, and causes them to glorify the enemy. So it's not killing your talent. It's not, it's not killing the real you. It's killing the sin that distorts your talent. Not killing your calling, but bringing revelation to who you really are. Let's stand this morning. Come on, say raised a life. Raised a life. Head bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. I want to just... Appeal to your heart just for a moment. I'm thinking that, that we've touched on some things that may hit you, and I want you to respond when we open up the altars this morning in closing. So let's talk about these things. The last one we talked about, it could be that you're letting discouragement have much more place than ought to be, and it needs to go in that box. It could be that you're letting limitations. It could be you're letting fear. You're letting a negative perspective. Maybe your history, maybe your parenting, maybe your lineage, maybe your family, maybe your sins. You're letting those things put a limit on the greatness God has for you. I want you to respond this morning when we open the altar, and I want you to put that in the box. Number two, maybe you have heard the appeal of some good things. There's been some pleasures that have pulled you aside. Pleasures of sin or maybe some good things, some good things that turned out to not be the best 
It's just simply stubbornness of heart. You're actually dealing this morning with distrust, rebellion, disobedience, stubbornness of heart. God's asking you to give Him fully your will, to yield to Him, to submit to Him. This is the hardest thing that we possibly can do is submitting to the leading of Father, the leading of the Lord, the leading of the Spirit. But if you know there's been an area in your life where you've said no, then He's asking you to come and put your stubborn will in that box. Lastly, just the pleasures of sin. If you've been struggling over a sin issue, you've been struggling over a sin issue, the pleasure of it keeps reeling you in and you keep falling for the bait that's on that hook of pleasure. I want you to come this morning. So those are three appeals, but I want you to keep your heads bowed for a moment because I want to appeal to one more person in our audience. That is you who have not given your heart to God. You've not given your heart to Jesus. The Bible says that until we come to Jesus, we're actually condemned with the devil and his ministers. Our favorite verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that none should perish, but ever, all should have everlasting life. That's a favorite verse for us, but John 3.17, just the verse that follows, says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. See, if we are not one with Jesus, if we've not accepted Him, we're already under condemnation. Right now, we're separated from God. Right now, the law testifies against us. Right now, we're not measuring up to what God desires. And God is throwing. He's throwing. He's casting His hook in your direction. And He's saying, would you give me your heart? Would you trust me? You that don't know Him, Would you come out of that position of condemnation? And would you give me your heart? Would you trust in what I've done through Jesus to save you, to deliver you, to redeem you, to restore you to me? That's my fourth appeal this morning. If you are here this morning and you've never given your heart to the Lord, or you're here and you're giving your your heart back to God, you know this is a morning to recommit your life to Him, then I want you to respond as well. Come on, let's begin to come right now. That's four four appeals. Begin to come. Just begin to come. Begin to come. Begin to come. Prayer team is going to meet you here. Just begin to come. We're going to sing it. Let's begin to respond to the Spirit. Let's begin to come. Look and bring somebody by the hand. Somebody beside you wants to come. There's a friend that wants to come. Walk with somebody. Bring somebody. Encourage somebody. Let's respond to the Lord. Let's respond to the Lord. Somebody looks like they want to come. Just reach over. Just grab their hand and bring them.
Those of you, you're thinking, I, I don't want to go up there. That could be embarrassing to go up there. What in the world? I don't want everybody to know that I've got one of those four areas in my life. It's exactly what will keep you from resurrection right there. That attitude right there is keeping you from resurrection. God is saying, put that attitude away. Put that attitude in that box, in that casket, and experience resurrection life. So we just count pride aside. We just we cancel pride right now. We cancel pride. We we dismiss pride that would keep us from responding to the appeal of the Holy Spirit. Come on, I want people up here praying with with uh, those that are responding. I, if anyone is up here responding, I want somebody up here praying. Just you that are on the prayer team, make your way out. You that are department leaders, connect group leaders, elders. Let's let nobody be up here on their own. Today is the day. Today is the day. We put to death our resistance to the Spirit. We put to death our resistance to the Spirit. We put to death our stubbornness, our self-will, the allurement of pleasure that we've been listening to, commit our hearts to the Lord. We commit our hearts to the Lord. We say yes to following Jesus.